So before the Scottish Trauma Network, today we had a car crash in Easter House. We would take our patients to the Royal because that's the nearest A&E. And now we follow the trauma triage tool. And then take our patient to the most appropriate receiving hospital, depending on the injuries the patient has. And that would usually be the Queen Elizabeth because... I'm in Glasgow, and that's the closest for the patient. Uh, what? How does the trauma triage tool work? A couple of students will have seen it. It's pretty foolproof, to be honest. Yeah. So the the big thing to consider with the trauma triage tool is applying it to the correct patient. So at the top, there's a little clause of use the trauma triage tool if you think the patient has a significant mechanism or has significant, potentially significant injuries. Um, so patients who are up and walking about, patients who have apparently minor injuries aren't necessarily the right patients to put through the trauma triage tool. Um, it's to, to consider the patients that you believe to have significant injuries. So there's a variety of steps to go through. So the step one criteria are the physiologic type criteria, and they are the most sensitive for picking up big, sick, big trauma patients. So that would be based on your GCS, blood pressure, etc., and those are the patients that are obvious to green responders, obvious to paramedics and technicians as badly injured. And if the patient were to meet any of those criteria, then the trauma triage tool recommends that you bypass to the nearest major trauma centre if that's achievable within 45 minutes travel time. And if that's not achievable, then to seek the advice of the critical care desk or requesting a pre-hospital critical care team to help support the patient during that transit. The only real exception to that is if the patient has an unmanageable obstructed airway that has to be secured so that the patient doesn't have a hypoxic insult for the duration of the transfer. So in some very rare circumstances, a patient with major, major trauma may be appropriate to divert to the nearest hospital to have a procedure in order to affect the transfer to the major trauma centre. And that should be done quickly. That shouldn't be when we've got all of the scans and the patient tidied up and everything sorted. That should be they've gone for that procedure. They've had that procedure now. They need to complete their journey. As you move down, the the different steps that takes you through things like the, the injury patterns, so central penetrating trauma, for example, if it's within 45 minutes, should, again, divert and bypass to a major trauma centre. And then further on, you get down into the special circumstances, uh, things like pregnancy, obesity. And this is the adult trauma triage tool that we're talking about. There is the paediatric trauma triage tool as well, uh, which is a little bit more wordy, a little bit more text to consider, um, but it's certainly something that we should apply to our, our younger age group and the under-16s in that not every hospital has paediatric services. The paediatric major trauma centres in Edinburgh and Glasgow are separate hospitals but co-located with the adult major trauma centre. But in other parts of the country, the trauma units would be where you would take the paediatric casualties if that's where they would normally go if there were children. So really applying this triage tool allows you to determine the level of care that's required by that patient at that time and to support paramedics and technicians in their decision-making with what place to go to. When you've done the triage tool, documenting that in your patient report form, and also when you're passing that standby call, telling the, the team that are receiving that that you have used the triage tool 
and that that's telling you to take them to hospital X because in some circumstances that might not be initially obvious uh, for why you're driving past two or three good hospitals with phenomenal facilities and great clinicians in order to go to that major trauma centre. But there are times when that's appropriate for that patient's journey. Yeah, uh, I spoke about this with Josh Williams. He is a winch paramedic uh, in Inverness. And I think everyone's getting used to it now, but it was a bit daunting going past a hospital, you know, as outstanding with someone who's very unwell to a hospital that is a little bit further away. But it all makes yeah. sense. It's all about getting the patient to the right place and yeah. not necessarily the treatment they're going to get immediately, but it's more about their aftercare as well. Is that right? Indeed, yeah. And the, the focus of services and major trauma being in the major trauma centres and in the trauma units means that when the patient has finished the hyperacute phase of their journey and they're appropriate to go to rehab and to go on to that next phase of the trauma recovery, is that they may then be repatriated to the hospital closest to home as long as that has the available facilities and services. So that flow of patients backwards and forwards is essential to maintain the capacity for the trauma centres to receive the next patients. It's also just good for patients to be rehabilitated in hospitals and services closer to home where their family and loved ones can come and visit and support them in their recovery as well. Excellent. So let's talk about major incidents. Um, are you finished with all the trauma stuff? Is there anything else you want so, to yeah. add? Yeah. So let's talk about major incidents. So what is a major incident? Many people will have read the definitions or done men's courses or done some reading and research, but a major incident is something that has to have some special circumstances put in place to deal with it because of either the number or severity of the real or potential casualties generated by an incident. And that might be because of the just the sheer volume of patients. It might be because of some special circumstances about the nature of the incident or it might be just because of the geography of the incident. So if you take a minibus crash in the east end of Glasgow, you can have double-figures ambulances there within a reasonable time frame. You can have multiple medical teams there within a reasonable time frame. You can have the patients conveyed to hospital very quickly. That doesn't necessarily mandate a full major incident declaration and all the processes that are required. You take that very same minibus with the same six or seven people and you put that onto a remote island in the west coast of Scotland, that then suddenly can overwhelm the local resources very readily. And therefore, the thresholds for major incidents will change depending on local circumstances and particular circumstances about that incident. It might just be because of the sheer weight of patients that's going to be generated by an incident, even if we don't believe those patients to all have very serious trauma. So again, thinking of a school brush, a school bus that overturns has 20 or 30 teenagers on it with minor injuries but all of them are going to require conveyance to hospital many of them might require immobilization for that that might be a major incident but very much a compensated and contained major incident that can be managed without full major incident escalation so you may not have mutual aid moving patients between health boards you might not necessarily even need to move them to different hospitals they may all be able to be managed by the one hospital and you might then institute some major incident processes like medical teams that seem to help to rationalise how many of those patients need to go. 
So some of those can be seen, assessed and treated at the scene if that's something that can be offered by the ambulance service. So really any incident that requires special circumstances to be instituted by the ambulance service to try and prevent a decompensation, generally because of the number or nature of the casualties or the the location or the, the different intricacies of how that incident has occurred. What do you mean by compensated and decompensated? Yeah, that's almost getting into the major incident versus major incident with mass casualties. So if you look at the numbers of major incidents that we have in Scotland and the numbers of patients generated by them, they're generally in the 20 to 30 to 40 range of numbers of patients. If you take something like Manchester, for example, that very much looked into what we would call a mass casualty incident where there were into the hundreds of patients that were injured and how many of them needed to go to hospital. That's the major incident that requires mutual aid across health boards and across geographical borders as well. That's the sort of thing that needs long major incident management because it's not just the acute phase of that incident. It's about what happens to those patients day two, day three, when they need multiple surgeries as well. So it's about the longer term planning. And actually in the compensated major incident, the major incident triage tools can help to select which patients need attention first. But in the decompensated major incident, that's when we're looking at things like doing the most for the most and making sure that our triage is robust to make sure that we are not focusing unnecessary unnecessary resources on patients who have injuries that unfortunately wouldn't be survivable, even with the best medical care. So the compensated major incident is thankfully what we get most of. And as I've said, 20 to 30 patients is conventional for a Scottish major incident. And if you look to other places in the UK where you can have a decompensated major incident a little bit more frequently. That's when lots of unusual arrangements have to be made in terms of moving specialist resources around the country um, and things like urban search and rescue, Coast Guard, mountain rescue can come into that as well. Could that be the train crash in Aberdeen recently? Would that have been... That that Stonehaven one, thankfully, we... That had potential to be a huge incident and a huge disaster. So that was a commuter train, um, which in non-COVID lockdown times could potentially have had six or seven times as many people on that train as possible. Um, But during the incident itself, Mm. fortunately, there were very few people on the train itself and very few people involved. And so had that been at a different time of day, a different time of year, and there wasn't a lockdown on, then that potentially would have been a mass casualty incident in quite a remote location and would have been, you know, much, much more difficult to manage than it actually was at the time. Um, so you were asking about the, the George Square major incident that actually never was. So that was an interesting incident and in that the atmosphere in Glasgow City very much felt like it was going to be a major incident that evening uh, when I was in picking up some takeaway for my family. Um, so had non-alcoholic beer with the takeaway because I was expecting to be called. Um, that developed over many hours. So for those that don't know, there were the celebrations in Glasgow after a large football team won a trophy um, that started off in one part of the city and slowly migrated across the south side into the city centre. That, as far as I'm aware, stayed at major incident standby for the duration of the major incident. So it never actually was declared as a full major incident. 
although many of the processes that would be seen in a major incident were instituted. So we had multiple sort teams there. We had multiple medical teams there and we had a casualty clearing station. There were cordons established. There were clear communications with ambulance control and a separate talk group. And there were communications with the HALOs, the hospital ambulance liaison officers at the major hospitals in Glasgow. And what happened there was due to alcohol, sunshine, drugs and over-exuberant celebrations, there were a number of trauma incidents and medical-related incidents. And over a period of hours, many of those were assessed, treated at the scene, and some of them transported onto hospital. But because of the way that that was managed, that meant that there was no decompensation. And in fact, the health board, NHS Greater Glasgow, never had to establish a major incident because the patients were distributed across the different hospitals and sent in such a fashion that they could always manage with getting the next patients in. So that, I think we saw about 40 or 50 patients through the casualty clearing station on that day. And until the square was cleared, that was all very much contained within one geographical area with a casualty clearing station. Of course, as the night progressed and the police cleared the square, those patients, those punters that were out on the streets still then were in the city centre. And that continued to be an exceptionally busy night for the local health boards well into the wee hours. But because of the processes that had been established at the scene by the ambulance service that managed to retain a degree of compensation throughout the whole duration. So somebody would have turned up at George Square in an ambulance because someone has been hurt. They would have seen, and everyone's aware that there's multiple people there drinking, partying. They would have said, this looks like it's potentially going to overwhelm the ambulance service or is going to overwhelm the Glasgow Royal, the nearest hospital. And then that's going to potentially spill over to the Queen Elizabeth and Monklands and other hospitals. So at that point, a manager has said, right, this potentially could be a major incident. So a major incident standby. And then everything that would have gone into place as a major incident has potentially started, but it hasn't progressed past the point where it has overwhelmed the services. Correct. Yeah, and that was something that actually there was a sort team with one of the police teams that followed the group that moved from the south side of Glasgow into the city centre. So that was, you know, senior clinicians within the ambulance service throughout that long protracted incident. So there was always senior eyes at the scene. There were always people up in ambulance control and in the event control co-located with the police that always had eyes and ears on that making sure that it remained in the compensated state. And if you were on an ambulance on that sort of day, if you were tasked then to go along to that, typically there would be a geographical area that would be set up in ambulance control. And if you were responding to anything within that area, you would be allocated a specific top group and given a specific rendezvous point to progress to rather than being sent directly into the locus of the incident. So the patients in that were all set within a cordon that was managed by the police. So if you think about a newly qualified paramedic or a newly qualified technician, they are going to be, I certainly was terrified at the thought of responding to a major incident and being first on scene. So do you have anything, any advice you would like to give to them? I would say um, it's always a daunting thought, but the decision really is going to lie with somebody above you. So if in doubt, 
phone somebody and ask for advice and keep yourself safe while you do it. Yeah. So my general tips would always be to get help and phone a friend. The temptation in many of these big incidents is to do what your training tells you to do and it will kick in and you'll find the sickest patient and try and give them the best possible care. Really, when you get to one of these incidents, it's about recognizing that this is something that might be a major incident that might require a different way of managing it. And actually, we would advocate what's called the windscreen or windshield report or the windshield meeting. So getting to an incident like this, thinking this is unusual, I think that we are going to need help. Here's what we know so far. So the methane report is almost like the A to E of major incidents. It's a structured language for communicating what we see, what we know at that time, what hazards we can see, how we're getting in and out of that, and what emergency services that we need. So for a newly qualified paramedic or technician getting to something that looks potentially huge, I would advocate always so calling on to people at the critical care desk to get some support and advice, passing a windscreen methane, whether that's saying major incident declared or standby or this might be a major incident, I don't know yet, but then telling what we know. So the most striking example of this was the team arriving on scene at Grenfell for the building fire in London, where they described seeing a high-rise flats that's fully ablaze it's two o'clock in the morning, so there's going to be many people in their beds, and I need multiple ambulances, fire, police, and medical teams. That gives a very visual impact of what that person is seeing at that time. It allows other people to start to think of how we can support that team. So we're going to send additional resources as quickly as we possibly can, and we're going to send senior resources to help to relieve that role of command. So the, the important bit of the early part of a major incident is about making sure that that command and control is established first before we move on to things like triaging the casualties. And obviously during this, other people will arrive. So sort teams will arrive and the sort team lead may take on the ambulance incident commander role for a period of time until a local area service manager type level of person comes to perform the role of the tactical commander or the ambulance incident commander. I recently took part in a MIMS course of major incident management and the thing I took away from that was so we've all been given um, work phones, we've all got a shiny new Samsung and I've got methane as my background now so I can just have a look at it as the background of my phone if I ever need to use it and I think keep on top of your triaging. If you want to tell us a wee bit about triage. Yeah, and on the, the methane thing, there's a free app from Prometheus Medical uh, that has just a methane that you can auto-populate by tapping buttons, picks up your exact location, has drop-down boxes for things like hazards, and that's a really useful aid memoir but also to keep you right on the things and the information that you need with the accuracy that you require that as well. I would say that major incident triage is being revamped so it's worth watching out for what's going to happen in the rest of the UK and we are working towards changing it in Scotland as well so the triage tools that we use just now are essentially trying to identify those patients who have the injuries that will cause them biggest concern or threat to life first so that resources can be concentrated on those patients. So 
So if the patient doesn't have catastrophic hemorrhage, which is an automatic P1, if they don't have that, if they are walking wounded, they are managed as a P3, a priority three casualty, and they essentially are kept in one place with regular medical review, because some of these patients can still have significant pathology, and then move to an area where they may have delayed transportation to hospital if there are so many P1 and P2 casualties, so immediately life-threatening or stable stretcher-type patients. If there are so many of those that require earlier transport to hospital, then the P3 casualties might be kept in a holding area for a period of time. The, the big sick patients, so the ones with the immediate threat to life with a CABC problem, those are the ones that will be P1, so priority one casualty. Those are the ones that might have additional resources given to them. So that might be a red team that's allocated just to that patient to give blood transfusions in order to get them to hospital. Or it may be appropriate in a very large major incident that those patients have the immediate life-threatening treatments that can be given. So airway adjuncts, airway maneuvers, splinting of pelvic fractures, compression of hemorrhage, and early transportation in order to get those patients to hospital as quickly as possible. And otherwise, there's a group of patients in the P1 tier who require some medical interventions in order to safely get them to hospital. Uh, But when we do that, there is a bit of opportunity cost. So we lose a red team, a medical team, to be able to do the interventions for that patient and then take them to hospital. Because if we've given a patient an anaesthetic or a blood transfusion, we can't then hand them on to a paramedic and expect them to be able to manage all of the potential complications of those procedures. And then in the middle, there are the stable stretcher patients. So those patients who have injuries such that they are non-walking, but they do still have significant injury. And those patients are often managed via going through a casualty clearing station where they can have more history-taking examination more treatment, particularly the advanced interventions that can be applied. And some of those patients will be improved by their treatments and some of them will deteriorate despite their treatments. So it's important to recognise that the triage is a dynamic process that should be repeated, particularly if there's been a significant time delay or after any intervention as well. The numbers of casualties and their triage status is the one thing that's constantly asked for in a major incident. So you're right, Stuart, B on top of your triage, have an accurate casualty count if you can. And if we don't have accurate triage numbers yet, it's fine to give approximate numbers and assume that those that can't walk are P1 in the initial throws. So we have 10 potential P1s and 20 walking wounded is an absolutely fine starting point for a a methane message. And so if we go back, so what's likely to happen... Uh, say I got sent to a mass casualty at the hydro, sometimes a gas explosion or something. I would then go and I would say major incident standby and then would maybe would send all this information to control and then potentially would decide that it is a major incident. More resources would come along and potentially I or someone that I've decided is capable of doing it is going to then do triage. So they're going to walk around all the injured people and they're going to follow an algorithm and they're going to decide what priority they are. And then from there, as more resources arrive, an incident commander will come and take over and then all the information will get passed to control and we'll decide how we're treating all these people as they come along. And like you say, we'd be 
reassessing the numbers and reassessing the casualties as the incident went on. Another thing I took away yeah. from that course that I think would be really useful is starting an audio note as a log. Because part of your major incident protocol is you're going to start a log and it's going to be very difficult to be writing down things and trying to justify your decisions. So like someone was saying, the major incident could be two years before the fatal incident inquiry or the fatal accident inquiry and you could then be asked to come up and ask and um, explain why you didn't send this person to hospital or why you sent this person and why you didn't do this. And I think having a voice note, would you'd, I take it you'd be able to kind of transcribe that yourself and you'd have something written down as to why you've done these things. Yeah, that's, that's certainly something that I would advocate as well. The Being able to get a notebook out and write what's happening is potentially quite challenging. In our major incident kit bags, we used to carry the old dictaphones with the tapes but now with the ubiquitous voice memo on our certainly on our service phones, uh, and I'm sure on the smartphones that are provided to frontline responders in the ambulance service, being able to record contemporaneously what's known at that time, what's not known, and why you've chosen to do what you've done is a much more effective way of recording that than even trying to sit down immediately after the incident and write down what you remember, because much of that information will be lost. Someone up in control will be writing out the incident board. So what's transmitted on the top group will be logged. And that's another way of making sure that those decisions are logged, particularly when it comes to things like casualty distribution and what hospitals are going to receive which patients and importantly, which patients need prioritised for early transportation. But the individual decisions on role allocations, on what you've done, where you've set up a casualty cleaning station or where you're basing yourself, when you've managed to locate key personnel like the police incident commander and fire incident commander, logging all of that on a voice memo, being able to send that to your nhs.scot email, for example, so that that's then stored in the cloud and you can then transcribe that into an accurate document. Um, And then obviously after the incident, early on, the NRRD in the ambulance service host all of the documents together so they'll collect all of the patient records all of the clinical records and all of the logs so that they're held together in one repository for any incident review and for debriefing purposes as well excellent so let's talk about so those are potential pressures with big bad major incidents uh, what are happening what's what are the pressures that hospitals are currently facing post-COVID? So I've got a relatively broad scope of interest, as I'm sure you know. Um, So as well as being the major incident lead for EMRS, um, I am the vice president of our Royal College of Emergency Medicine in Scotland. Um, So I have numbers coming out my ears when it comes to the data and the information about how and why we're in the situation that we're in. For anybody that's working in the ambulance service or has visited an emergency department in the last year, you'll have seen that we are under significant pressure almost every day. So if we look back to pre-pandemic, what was happening, we used to have winter pressures. So you would have a hit to our performance against the four-hour safety standard every winter and at busy times. So you would have bad days. You would have post-four-day public holidays, particularly Christmas and New Year, 
where hospital discharges were down, hospital occupancy rose, and therefore getting patients processed through an emergency department efficiently and admitted timeously was difficult. And that's when we saw dips in our performance. Those dips tended to recover quite quickly and they recovered to good levels during the summer, but often poorer over the winter. The pandemic came along and for many reasons, hospital attendances and ED attendances plummeted and the overall hospital occupancy plummeted. We also had enhanced staffing, so many people were redeployed to emergency departments and actually the working in an emergency department during that time it was as close to efficient emergency medicine as we've seen in a very long time because we had appropriate staffing levels, appropriate bed availability, and we also had hospitals that were set up to try and process those patients through because things like elective care were largely paused for non-cancer, non-emergency type situations. Now, in the I'm not going to say post-pandemic, but in the recovery from the pandemic phase, we now have a smaller hospital bed base. So there are fewer acute beds in Scottish hospitals than there were 10 years ago for many good reasons because hospital lengths of stay have been down. People can be managed in the community for far more conditions than they were before, but that has probably tipped too far and there are hospital occupancy rates. So how many folk are in acute beds is sitting above 95% and in some places it's sitting at more than 100%. So that's wards that have taken additional patients who are in sometimes non-clinical areas, not particularly suitable for patient care, but just to try and establish enough capacity. That then causes exit block. So exit block is the term that we use to describe what happens when an emergency department is full and has many patients who can't exit the department to be admitted to hospital beds under the right specialty in a timely fashion. That measured against the four-hour safety standard means that we are now sitting with about one third of patients spending more than four hours in an emergency department persistently. And that's happened since our winter recovery this year. We're consistently sitting at about a third of patients spending more than four hours. More importantly, we're seeing patients consistently waiting eight or 12 or more hours to be admitted via the emergency department. And those are the patients that I really worry about because there's very good evidence that spending more than about six hours in the emergency department is associated with an increased risk of death at 30 days. So the longer you spend in an emergency department that's overcrowded, that then causes ambulance queues outside the department as associated with patient harm. So really we need to, as a system, help to try and process those patients timelessly via an emergency department but into an acute bed quickly so that the next group of patients in the ambulances and in the community can importantly come into the emergency department and have the treatment that they, they need. So that's a kind of summary of the pressures. What, we, what we're not seeing is lots of minor ailment, minor injury stuff that shouldn't be in an emergency department. So the numbers that can be redirected is very small. We're still between 5 and 10% down on pre-pandemic ED attendance numbers across the country. There's some variation from site to site, but things like flow navigation centres, minor injury units and different ways to access care has certainly reduced how many of those lower acuity patients come to the emergency department and have little care because they can be managed in another way. But what hasn't gone away is the fact that many of our frail, vulnerable elderly patients are spending far too long on hospital trolleys or sitting outside our departments and ambulances. Yeah, that's the frustrating part of it. 
Um, I think I can definitely see that over the last year or so, there's been a big push for alternative pathways. And I feel as if they're making, I don't have any figures, I just mean from my own views. I feel as if it's making a big difference. I feel as if we're, we're able to, we don't have to take as many people to hospital as we had to before. And it does make a difference. But there's also, so say for instance, when if I'm taking a patient to a hospital, I'm stuck outside, there's no room for the patient to go in and be assessed. So I have to look after them in the ambulance, which could be up to however many hours it takes to get them in. So at that point, what is, I assume everything behind the scenes is already it's been happening before I've arrived. They've known it's getting busy. But what kind of things happen when it is in, in a busy a busy day and there are huge queues outside? So when it's in extremists, there's the early things and the quick things that can be done to try and establish and some safety and mitigate the risk that's being held in ambulances outside. So we try as best we can to identify those patients and ambulances who are fit to sit. So those that did need an ambulance, did need to be conveyed to hospital, but don't perhaps need to wait in that ambulance for many hours until an appropriate cubicle can become available for them. And if triage is working effectively, then they can go via triage, have their initial assessment, and then further clinical assessments as required. We often end up having to send a member of nursing or medical staff to the ambulances to eyeball the patients and see what the repeat vital signs are. Because, of course, when you're with that patient for that period of time, you might start to have clinical concerns that the patient now needs treatment that's out with your scope of practice or there's been some deterioration in the patient. And that's why we don't close off on the patient report form on arrival to hospital. It's that handover because it's really important to keep monitoring that patient. And we do at times have patients coming from ambulance queues who maybe have waited outside for a couple of hours but then deteriorate and need to be moved into the resource room. And that's not uncommon. Um, and that's something that does generate alarm bells for us because those patients really should have been in a lot longer than they were. A lot of places have different models for how they're going to manage the downstream risk. So in many hospitals in Glasgow now, they have a continuous flow model where before the bed is available on the ward for the patient, the patients will leave both emergency departments and immediate assessment units and move downstream towards where discharges are anticipated. Now, that may be that there are patients who are still in the bed space, but they're waiting for something as simple as a discharge letter and drugs. And those are the patients that can perhaps then sit out to wait for their things to become available to go home. And the patient who's been moved into that ward can be moved into the appropriate bed space. And for things like enhanced use of discharge lounges for patients who are waiting for transportation, drugs, carers, family, those sorts of things to come and pick them up. All the while, the emergency department, doctor in charge, nurse in charge, will be speaking to, uh, in different places, it'll be bed managers, flow coordinators, general managers, and at times the executive on call to describe our fears and concerns for what's happening in the department at that time. So if that gets as bad as we are now having to hold standby calls because there's no resource space to put them into. Again, that's another step in the internal escalation process, eventually that can be responded to in the same way as a major incident, with many of the different steps that a hospital would take in a major incident being undertaken, such as 
calling in additional staff, both in the ED and in the downstream specialties, about moving patients downstream, whether or not a space is immediately available or not. So that may be moving some lower acuity patients who've been seen and treated into outpatient clinics, endoscopy areas, theatre recovery, or over into the wards. So if you have one extra patient in each ward, rather than 30 extra patients in one department, that might be safer. It's by no means a long-term solution, and it's absolutely not the preferable option. We would always advocate that a full, proper internal escalation plan would stop that ever having to be required. And in order to do that, we have to have enough acute hospital beds to manage the numbers of patients that we've got. What do you think the solution is in the future? We, we, the NHS, has probably taken too many beds out of the system. Um, so we probably need, about in Scotland, about another 1,000 staff acute hospital beds. The staff is the, the interesting bit because we can't recruit and we can't retain the staff that we have just now, never mind opening another large hospital. Um, so 1,000 beds is about the size of a large teaching hospital. Um, so to think about how you would staff that, without those people being immediately available as a challenge. We have to look after our staff, so we have to work in fulfilling environments where we feel safe, nurtured and valued. So doing everything we can to retain not just medical staff, but our nursing staff as well. The organisational intelligence of having a senior and experienced group of staff that have been in a department for a long time and know how to effectively get things done can't be replaced by multiple new starts because they take time to be trained up and being trained to work in an emergency department for nursing and medical staff is something that does take time and experience and can't be readily replaced by just recruiting new so we have to do all we can to retain the the staff that we've got and we also have to actually recognize that there is a crisis in emergency care in Scotland that our usual blip in the winter hasn't ever been a blip for the last year. It's been a continual deterioration and slow slide with a particular decompensation around about the December-January period. But we're now into a stable and not very good position and we have to prioritise emergency care again because an ineffective emergency care system will take down the rest of it. If hospitals are over full and there are emergency patients boarding into elective beds, well, elective care isn't effectively going to happen. And we're going to end up building up problems for the future and continuing to delay patient selective care. I was based in Inverness before I moved to Glasgow about four years ago. And it felt I got hammered with transfers from Ragmore down to Edinburgh, Glasgow, Aberdeen. I was sick. I was sick of it. It would be 10 hours into a 12-hour shift and then boom, you're off to Aberdeen. And a lot of the time I felt as if it was just because they needed the space it wasn't really a, an emergency. It was more that person needs to go there because we need room here. So see those thousand beds you're talking about. How would they be distributed amongst Scotland? Would they be, it's got to be 500 of them in Inverness, surely. 500 more in Inverness. I think Ragmore only has about 470 beds from memory. Uh, I'm making that figure up. I don't actually know, but I think it has to be evenly distributed. I think it can't just be distributed into the big centres, into the teaching hospitals, um, because as you've said, we may have gone too far with the centralisation of some services. So we know that benefit of centralisation of major trauma services, 
we know that centralising things like elective care can make that more efficient because those beds can be ring-fenced. So if you have elective care on an elective-only site, then you can't suddenly fill up all those beds with patients who need to be in a bed but end up boarding into the wrong ward in order to offload the ED, in order to offload the ambulances. So there has to be some planning behind this and there has to be an expansion in all of the areas that currently are under the biggest pressures. So places that we see around about the west of Scotland where they're running more than 100% capacity all of the time. And we saw an interesting move and initiative in Lanarkshire recently where they had a fire break where they examined every single admission coming into hospital for what can we do to try and manage this patient as quickly in hospital as we can or how do we get as many patients home directly from emergency departments and acute medical receiving units as quickly as possible to try and reduce how many admissions we are having. And they did manage to improve their performance really rapidly. Actually just expanding those types of places would really help. And whenever we build a new hospital, we can't make it smaller than the ones we had before. And that seems to be one part of healthcare planning that I think we've gone too far with. So constantly trying to push more care into the community without necessarily the infrastructure and the staffing for those community services to work effectively just means that you have more unplanned attendances into hospitals. So it has to be a long-term strategy for the size of the acute bed base and for a long-term workforce strategy as well. Thank you to JP Loughry there from EMRS and the Queen Elizabeth Emergency Department.